welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, go into an American bookshop and you'll get the impression that the two most important events that have ever happened in human history were the American Civil War and the Second World War. In England, it's very different. In the bookshops there, the two most important events in human history are the Tudors, Henry VIII, Good King, Queen Bess, the Spanish Armada, and all that, and the Second World War. So in the spirit of giving the people what they want, the first two books in Dominic Sandbrook's New Adventures in Time series, written for children of all ages, but particularly for his son Arthur, are The Six Wives of Henry VIII and the Second World War. Dominic Sandbrook has reached Tudor England and Nazi Germany by a curious road that began with his first book, a biography of St. Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota, and has wandered through a series of fantastic books on modern Britain after 1957, most recently, Who Dares Wins, and I forget the subtitle, which I didn't write down. He is a columnist for the Daily Mail and is the co-host with Tom Holland of a charming niche podcast, The Rest is History. Listeners of this podcast might recall Tom from episode 139, in which I, with great tact and emollients, persuaded a notoriously reticent Tom Holland to finally open up about the argument of his book Dominion, something that he rarely does. Dominic Sandbrook, welcome to Historically Thinking. Uh, thank you very much, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. I um, I was obviously outraged that you described our podcast as a niche podcast. Well, it, when we think was... of it as a mass market podcast, well, I was delighted. We... <laughs> I was delighted to hear you mocking Tom Holland. I think that's basically what uh, my Tom, co-presenter. I have very few people that I um, that I talk to on podcasts who I say I wish I had written that book. Yeah. Dominion is actually one of them. It's like I had the ideas, but I could never have written it because I'm not a classicist. Tom just had a different way of looking at things. And this is not how I thought this podcast was going to go. I out. know it I, isn't. Uh, so, I, so I do a podcast with Tom twice a week, and I have to listen to him talking about it. Yeah, I know. I'm not going to. The thought that I'm now going on another podcast, <laughs> and we're also talking about his book, is terrible. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, when I contacted, when I wanted to contact originally, I wanted to talk about your series of enormous books of the right. politics and culture of Britain, which I think cover le- fewer years as you go on. It went from like it five did. or six, it's gone down to two. I'm expecting right. that we're going to go through the last four years of the Thatcher you know, <laughs> that government what year by year. I don't know. I but know, it's it, ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Instead, so they it, are getting smaller. They are, but they're, yeah. they're great. And uh, unfortunately, they're really hard to find in the States. Uh, you have to like call someone up in Britain. It's like I had to order one from Blackwell's, like a you know, in green ink on paper. It was 1893 <laughs> or something like that. Um, but you've got these new books out, I guess, for a break because I because you've been on yeah. this you've been on this trudge through modern Britain for a while, um, and this is obviously a nice busman's holiday. I don't... It is a little bit. You're right. So you're right. I've been doing these books about post-war Britain for 15 years or so, and I suppose for American listeners. The nearest comparison is kind of Rick Perlstein's books, I suppose. Um, yeah, they're better the than 60s. that. Yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's I, I would, no, I mean, the, the closest thing, I mean, I, is actually in a weird way is Robert Cairo. Okay. Um, yeah. I'll take and, that. I'll you definitely take that. Take yeah. That. But it, I mean, um, years of Lyndon Johnson, although the, 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 the but he's got a biographical concept. Um, you don't. Yeah. You've got um, yeah. a cast of, um, a dizzying array of characters, but it's the same sort of trying to unpack the social history. He's actually trying to unpack the social history as well as a biographical concept. Yeah, so that's, sort of immersive, yeah. that's sort of immersive stuff. But you're right. So I had just done Who Dares Wins, which is about the first part of the 80s in Britain, the Thatcher administration. So it's incredibly, in Britain, a very conflicted, very controversial time. And um, it was just after I'd done that, my son at school was doing uh, World War II as his topic, but they do it as a... They, they do it as the story of the kids who are evacuated from the mm-hmm. cities. So he was doing evacuees, which is a lovely story and a nice way to get kids interested in it. And we took him to um, the Imperial War Museum oh, yes. in London, a fantastic wow. museum of, of Britain's experience of, of war in the 20th century, and particularly the World Wars, obviously. Mm. And and I, we got halfway around and I sort of said to him, it was that classic thing of, you know, they're, they're all gung-ho at the beginning and they want to climb on some tanks. But you get halfway around, you're saying, read the bloody captions, and they're getting bored. <laughs> And so I sort of said, well, I'll get you a book when we get to the gift shop. And we get to the gift shop and there wasn't really, and it was that classic, that that thing that you've heard authors say a billion times. There wasn't quite the book I wanted. And I just thought, 
well, why couldn't I do it? Because, you know, I can write, I write for the newspapers, I write TV documentary scripts and so on. Mm-hmm. So I thought, if, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, why couldn't you, I turn this into, you know, a series? Because yeah. it's not just the Second World War, there's so many other subjects. And I mentioned it to my publishers and they said, you know, what a, you know great, go for it, give it a go. They didn't, um, they didn't say, hey, where's the next, we're waiting for the next Thatcher, next Thatcher book. You know, you know, you know don't. No, don't, no, don't I mean, I am, doing another, I am doing another one for them, but I think they, they, uh, they liked the idea. No one else has really tried to do this. So people have written history books for kids, mm-hmm. but I don't think anyone's ever done it who'd already written books for adults. So in other words, to give you the US example, you know, um, to use my Rick Perlstein or Robert Caro analogy, they haven't tried to do the same thing for children. Right. Um, so it's quite unusual. And I, yeah. and I sort of thought, you know, it is, it is going to be, it's like a, I'm going to be using different muscles, basically. Yeah. I'm going I to be emailed you, in a completely different way. I emailed you something from Perspectives on History from uh, October 2016. Uh, David Spear, who's now emeritized at Furman, South Carolina, written a little thing on landmark books, um, which yeah. I had a conversation back in April, I think, with Jonathan Zimmerman and Elliot Cohen about um, whether it's possible to teach American history for the, as a civic good anymore. Um, and they both, uh, well, actually, Elliot and I both liked landmark books growing up. And in many ways, that story is very much, Bennett Cerf, it's, it, the differences are interesting. Bennett Cerf, one of the founders of Random House, walks into a bookstore on Cape Cod, can't find a book about the pilgrims for his son. And so he commissions one. Um, and he commissions, my God, he commissioned uh, William Shire, uh, a year after he wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, he wrote a history of uh, Hitler. He got C.S. Forrester to write about the Barbary pirates. He got uh, war correspondents. He got Pulitzer Prize winners. He got a Nobel Prize winner to write histories for landmark books. You, yeah. Dominic Sandbrook, decided to do it all yourself. So I have to admire the what what you know what Americans call chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the fun, though. That's the fun of it. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point. If I'd got somebody else to, if I'd said to to Tom Holland or any of my other historian friends, then I would kind of lose control and I would lose authorship. And I just sort of thought I would actually love to write about Alexander the Great or Cleopatra, yeah. which I've done, which are forthcoming books in the series. You know, it's I amazing they did that. That would be, I, I'd love to um, delve into the historiography, read as much as I can, and then kind of synthesize it in a child-friendly, in a way that my son will read. So um, it's it's very much like I, you've been out of the classroom for some time, and I, yeah. as, I, as, I, as I now, and it's uh, it's very much the, I mean, I only taught, I taught Plato's Republic because otherwise I wasn't going to read it. And I did the same for home. I, there are certain things, and you don't want to tell students this, but there are certain things I was teaching because otherwise I wasn't going to read them. I was afraid I wouldn't read them, and I read them differently having to teach them the first time and the second time and the third time. And it strikes me in a way that you're kind of doing the same thing. I mean, you could read about the tutors, but much better to like figure out how to write a book yeah. about them while reading Absolutely. Them. Absolutely. It's a bit like um, the, it's a weird analogy, but it's a bit like when I was an undergraduate at Oxford and each week we'd do a different subject. I mean, you know, no. you spend a whole, a whole week on, on yeah. the origins of the second world war or something. And you'd have yeah. to write an essay about it and yeah. that would fix it in your mind. And, in, and, and I just sort of thought, I know it is a bit mad to think I can sort of spend a few months reading about Alexander the Great and then write a book about it, but why not? You know, yeah, I'll give it a not? go. Well, that's great. Uh, so uh, I'm very curious about some of the influences. Um, where we had landmark books, you had Ladybird books, and I am a yeah. trained I am a trained historian. So I looked up Ladybird <laughs> books, and I noticed that they're subtitled "Adventures in History." Yeah. Coincidence? Yeah. I think not. Um, no, I, I did think of that. I thought of absolutely of <laughs> that. So we call it as Adventures in Time. Yeah. Um, the Adventures in History books have been out of print for about 30 years, but I thought yeah. for people who knew, it would be a nice kind of nod. Oh, very nice. Yeah. And so I grew up reading these books. So for your US listeners, these were very sort of very short little hardback books. Yes. Um, very, very simply written and very old fashioned. Um, so Britain was always the hero. Mm. And, you know, there's, there's lots of sort of um, cancelable treatment mm-hmm. of the various peoples that we that we crushed underfoot. But like you know, it, was sort of, mm. it was sort of great. <laughs> it was sort of great civilizations, great men and women from history, all this sort of stuff. Now, the thing is, you know, they had about 80 books. Um, I read probably most of them as a child because mm-hmm. I loved history. And they gave them, me the most fantastic grounding. I mean, we did a Tom and I did a podcast with a specialist on Oliver Cromwell. 
yeah. um, about six months ago. And we both remembered these stories from yeah. the Ladybird book about Oliver Cromwell, which were I, completely I, untrue, by the way. Somehow was stolen one, by a monkey one, as a baby. One must have been bootlegged over here because I remember those stories. And I'm pretty sure I somehow got a copy of some Ladybird books at some point. I flipped right. my parents' attic. So that Oliver Cromwell was stolen by a monkey and that yeah. he and a young Charles I had a fight. Had a fight. Had a fight. Which is completely <laughs> impossible on all yeah. sorts of levels. It's utterly um, untrue. But you know what? I remembered that. And mm-hmm. and in a weird way, I mean, I'm not going to make the case as a sort of trained historian for untrue stories in history. But for a child, it really is so important to give them colourful stories, mm-hmm. to get them interested and to fix things in that. They will remember. I mean, it's just a human instinct. You need you, you start with the story. And then you can get into the arguments and the historiography and the sources and all this stuff. But I think if you don't start with the story, then you're on the back foot from the beginning. So when I lived in England, uh, I was there just before Harry Potter really crossed over. You still had to buy Harry Potter on Amazon.co.uk and have it shipped to the States at the time. Wow. That's just okay. to date myself. Yeah. Um, and I realized soon from learned reviews in the Observer or wherever that, um, that you know, this was a tradition of schoolboy literature. And I knew about, you know, sort of P.G. Woodhouse, Mike and Smith stories. Excellent. Yes. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I discovered the joys of Just William um, and, and various other things. And then, of course, Biggles. And and all these other stories. I know that I've heard you talk about this with with Tom Holland, but I mean, I think if I'm not, I think that you've had your son read some uh, Henty, which is, I, I believe, yeah, is is, is a is a is a against many municipal codes in various yeah. regions. So, exactly, it's against the law. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but I so I suspect a lot of these are at work here. I mean, telling that good story, you learned from lots of places in addition to Ladybird how to tell a good story. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the the techniques of a children's story actually really haven't changed. Mm. Um, but I think obviously I was steep, you know, I read a lot of very old fashioned kids books, daring do kind of books, mm-hmm. I suppose you would call them sure. um, as a boy. And I sort of thought, you know, they ended, the chapters ended on cliffhangers. Mm-hmm. They were great characters. And, and there's a sort of, um, the, the authors were unafraid to really sort of cut to the chase. You know, if somebody mm-hmm. was a good guy, they would say so. If he was bad, they would say so. You know, just they just kind of went for it in a way that actually storytellers do now. You know, if it's a Harry Potter or a Star Wars film or, mm-hmm. or superhero stories and so on. And I sort of thought, you know, that has not changed. And you could write the story of the Second World War, you know, for children, for, for, if a child is capable of understanding the Star Wars universe and knowing all the complicated ways that these planets interact with each other and the Jedi and all that sort of stuff, then they're perfectly capable of understanding the story of how the two world wars happened the constellation of forces on either side mm-hmm. you know the fact that stalin is a bad guy but he's on the mm-hmm. allies side and world mm-hmm. war ii i mean they can completely take they can completely cope with all that so yeah. it's a combination of that old-fashioned storytelling but also sort of thinking whether well, 21st century children they're, they're obviously you know i can only get away with so many references to just william which was written a hundred years ago um so there are sort of nods to in, in the Second World War book, for example, Hitler, mm-hmm. we always conventionally use the German word Führer, mm-hmm. uh, which in German means leader. Um, and I sort of thought, oh, I'll call him, I mean, leader doesn't quite have the same ring in English. I'm not going to call him Führer for children. I'll call him, and there's a character in uh, the most recent Star Wars trilogy called Supreme Leader Stoke. So, sorry, Supreme Leader Snoke. And mm-hmm. I thought... Supreme Leader. There you go. For a child, I'm, they will completely. I'm hoping your use of Supreme Leader will outlast the memory of that there was a character called Snoke, who's the Supreme Leader. Right. I think, yeah. I think it's highly possible, given yeah. the uh, given the really wet smack that those movies um, made as they hit the ground falling after falling from a great height. So, uh, what? Uh, how do you break these apart then? So, you, you obviously you're going to end each chapter on a twist. Henry the wife is helpful. Henry the eighth is Henry the wife. Henry the eighth is helpful because he has six of them, six wives. Yeah, um, and yeah. so that yeah. enables you to break it apart nicely. Um, this is something I was very curious about. To what extent? Well, obviously. Dominic, you, you fell in love with Catherine of Aragon. It's very touching that you have a you have oh, a deep you. emotional. Yeah. It is. I mean, and you really those are. She's very good. hard done by Al. She's very she bad, is. badly treated. But you yeah. have a, the princess in the Alhambra dreaming of Arthurian romances. It's very right. nice. That's that style. I was, through, that was the 
that was the part. Yeah, it was, but that's the part I went back to and said, "Damn, how did he write that?" I went back and re- looked at it again as I was reading. I had to stop. Um, so you were able to break this up into six digestible pieces. Is that is it? Was that your initial insight that you were going to write about Henry the Eighth? Uh, you were going to write about the wives. Sort of. Yeah. Well, I thought doing it through the wives. I mean, the wives have colossal traction in in England, in Britain. Mm-hmm. So cultural yeah. traction. So everybody has their own favorite wife. Everybody knows the yep. six wives. There's this sort of rhyme that you learn when you're a child, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. I mean, everybody knows it. There are endless iterations on TV and in film and so on. So it just seemed a no-brainer that you would have, you would approach this story, which is actually a seismic story mm-hmm. in the sort of the the evolution of England and, and indeed of Britain, because it's the Reformation, because it's the great break with Catholic Europe. Um, and, and has been much discussed, actually, in recent years in the context of Brexit. So I sort of thought, heard, well, yeah. mm. you know, this is a great way into the story. The Six Wives is the way in. And, and I sort of thought as well, um, Catherine of Aragon, as a teenager, she genuinely does leave her parents, leave this fantastic palace in Granada. She takes ship to England, a country she's never been to, where she doesn't speak the language. And actually, as anybody listening to this will know, that is the kind of starting point of innumerable children's stories and legends and so on. Mm-hmm. The child leaves the family home and goes off to this weird country and, and is frightened. Called Hogwarts, and, for example. Right, I mean, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 or whatever. I mean, the journey, the, yeah, journey the journey is the classic the mm-hmm. is the classic device. So I thought, well, obviously you're going to start like this. You're going to start in Spain. She's the, she's the protagonist. We'll travel with her. We meet, we see Henry through her eyes. We see Tudor. And also the great thing about that was one of the things that children really like about the study of the past is the kind of weirdness of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a strange alien world where people eat weird food and they have odd social habits. If we see it all through her eyes, she's an outsider and she can effectively describe it to us. And then once I've got her on board, then it's a question of bringing in the other characters, the other wives. And obviously there's a degree of fun, you know. The, the, the weird thing about this, wearing my sort of historian hat, is actually some of them we know so little. There's so little in the sources. And these I'd, like, sort of... I'd like to point out he is a 20th century historian, post-World well, War II. that's the crazy thing. You're used to an abundance. And right. the, you know, a lot of us aren't. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the hilarious thing is you'll take, there'll be some characters, I don't know, Jane Seymour or something. So yeah. she's um, Henry's third wife. Um, and she's the mother of his son, Edward VI. He's a massive figure in British in English history because the, he really drives a lot of the kind of religious revolution. So Jane Seymour, virtually nothing is known about her. We know nothing about her personality. I mean, there's a there's a tiny fleeting reference in the archives to the fact that she was once, I don't know, seen in the same room as a plant or something. And from that, people have said the, the mother of English gardening, love flowers, you know, because they're just desperate to sort of yeah. milk any meaning out of these fragmentary archival references um so i found that very entertaining and and i mean we were just talking before the podcast one of the other funny things about the tudors is there are there are thousands of books on them in britain and thousands of books on them but they're all the same book because there are so few sources that all the authors effectively are doing is sort of juggling the same 27 facts yeah it's true and i also think that people when they get into this when they want to write about lincoln or jesus or napoleon a lot of do a lot of them are doing it because uh, and this goes for historians too, card-carrying historians. Um, they do it because they have an enthusiasm for Jesus or Lincoln or Napoleon, and they end up repeating the same things they liked reading about in the previous book. They just can't help themselves. It's a gravitational yeah. pull. You know, you know, you just get dazzled by the headlights, uh, to mix yeah, my metaphors. That's, um, no, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely right. And I think now one thing about that point is, though, that for writing that for children, um, often it's the first time a child has come across this story. So I really thought that, for example, with World War II, so with World War II, there are the obvious high points for, from a British perspective. Dunkirk, the Battle mm-hmm. of Britain, D-Day, Hitler in his bunker, you know, which, which to any adult are slightly cliched. We've heard them a thousand times. Of course, the, the child reading this book may never have heard. So I was talking to my editor who um, normally edits adult history books. And we were both sort of saying, the weird thing about this is writing this. I'm writing the story of Dunkirk. And most of the readers will not know that the British escape. Yeah. Whereas any adult, any adult, no matter how little they know about history, 
will roll their eyes and say, oh, Dunkirk again. But the child won't. So right. that was really fun. That was actually a really interesting challenge. At the same time, it's not like in the Second World War book, to jump forward the other one, you start with, I mean, you've got whole Ron Amitta's whole thesis about uh, the China War being the first part of the of the Second World War. I mean, you begin yeah. with the Muck Den incident. And you're and you're and you're sort of showing how this is the, the the for the Chinese at least World War II went on for a very long time. I mean, it's and it's all part of the same sort of strand in a way that one doesn't encounter that usually in British histories of the war. Um, no, which, I, which, I, which, I, which which kind of short the the forgotten army and all the rest of that stuff. You know, this is, it's kind of a trope. It's almost overdone now to say how uninterested the British seem to be in Asia. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's not completely true, but um, it's kind of true. I mean, it's like you know the war goes from. September 39 to May 45, right? Um, yeah. But... So you're right, exactly. So normally what happens in a, in a British version of the war, um, certainly a version for children, mm. is that you get right up to Pearl Harbor and it's only at Pearl Harbor. Suddenly the action mm. cuts to the to yeah. the Pacific and there are all these other countries that you haven't previously been told exist. Right, <laughs> right, the right. United States, uh, mm. China, Japan... That who have been completely off stage normally in sort of abbreviated British versions of the Second World War because it's all about the fall of France and Britain's mm. heroism and so on. So I thought, well, obviously you're going to if you're telling the global story, it's mad not to have Japan and China right there, kind of at the beginning. So I think I yeah. start the the book starts with Hitler, and mm. uh, and then we cut to Asia because I sort of thought, well, well, obviously that's going to come first because that happened first. It would be mad to start with the Nazi invasion of Poland and then say, oh, by the way, um, there's also this other war, which I haven't told you about, that's been going on for the best part of a decade. Well, you, 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 I mean, the Second World Book, you start with, you know, sort of the good box office stuff. You start with D-Day. That's um, right. That's a, a prologue. So we, we yeah. go right into In Media Race, May's Race, and then we see Max Schroeder. And then we go to this dreamy boy, this dreamy young man in, in Vienna. Could you describe... Um, I, I've heard you tell this story a couple times. Yeah. Could you tell the story about how what you originally wrote about Hitler and why you had to change it? Because I think this is a fantastic <laughs> insight. Well, so this was the first chapter I wrote, uh, the first thing I'd ever written for children. Um, and I, it, it was actually one of, it, it sounds like a weird thing to say because I write, I've written lots of books for adults and I write about 100 articles, newspapers in a year. But this was probably the, the thing that I've written that I had most fun writing. So it was a chapter introducing the child to, to Hitler, you see him first as the boy, he's described as only as the boy. And I sort of thought, I want them, I want this to be the journey of kind of um, a journey they're very familiar with, which is the journey of the person who turns to evil. So it's the journey of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings, or it's the journey of Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader in, in Star Wars, uh, or Voldemort in Harry Potter. Children will completely buy this because they'll, they'll, they'll be so familiar with it. So I set him up, as you say, he's dreamy, he's idealistic, which all of which is true. You know, he thinks about Wagner's operas, he's obsessed with Germany and German greatness and all this sort of stuff. Um, and I have him at the in the First World War. And my son was reading it um, as I was writing it. I would sort of give him pages. And um, at first, Hitler's only referred to as the boy. And there's a point at which he he said to me, when he goes off to fight for Germany in the First World War, he said, is this, is this, is this Hitler? And I said, is he? He said, oh, daddy, that's very clever, which I was delighted by. <laughs> but then later on, uh, Hitler in the trenches, he has mm -hmm. this dog. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a, a big dog where, lover. And a vegetarian. Yeah, of course, just very to, famously, yeah, yeah. very famously a dog lover. So they move down the trenches at one point, his sort of platoon or whatever, and they, he, he, ends, he can't find the dog on the day. So he never sees the dog again. And uh, Arthur, when he read this, I could see he was completely happy reading about the carnage of the trenches. But when he turned to this bit about the guy being separated from his dog, he started to look very misty-eyed. Oh, God, is he ever going to see the dog again? What's going to happen about the dog? And then he said, I just don't think Hitler should have a dog. I think he's obviously the hero once he's got a dog. You, have, you can't have the dog. So I, I took the dog out. You know, I thought, it's right. He's right. That is loading it too much. So I took the dog out, and the very the funny thing was when I told this story on I think our own podcast, mm. um, somebody tweeted me or sent me an email and said, "You're trying to you're, you're 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 distorting history. It's a disgrace that you are you're lying about history by deleting lying, this dog. lying distorter you." Yeah, and mm -hmm. I sort of thought that's a very strange way to think about <laughs> history. That that if if I cut a fact, 
I'm yeah. not denying it exists. I just haven't put it in my book. It's, it's a really um, mad way of thinking about that. We should have every possible fact. Uh, a children's book says it's 10,000 pages long. Otherwise, you're a liar. Um, yeah, well, it's it's all about knowing what to leave out. And that's uh, an Arthur Helpful. Of course. But what you put in is um, you say in the, I mean, you can find this because it's very lovely, in the acknowledgments, you say, and thank you to Arthur who read each chapter as I wrote it, solemnly ticking every battle, every massacre, and every severed head, and giving me extra points for hangings, drawings, and quarterings. So it's that's also, the Tudor book, I should say, rather yeah, than the Well, it's a world Well, you know, and that's, I want to get to that and um, and why that's different. Um, you talk about, for example, his leg was so swollen that he stayed in bed for days, his face purple with agony. Uh, the wound on his left leg had still not healed. Day after day, the red raw ulcer oozed a stinking pus so foul that his courtiers almost choked at the stench. Sometimes the wound became blocked, the pus building up until his doctor sliced it open, burned it to prevent infection, and banged it up again. And then we'll get to the enemas um, yeah. after that. Um, this is, so this is all true, Al. This is all I know. This is all, <laughs> these, these are good facts. He always is complaining about his sore leg. And, yeah. you know, right, um, as he limps around. This, Charlton Heston did a good turn, and I think The Prince and the Pauper is Henry VIII. Very believable. Henry really? VIII. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen uh, it. Amazing. I mean, he's both, both Cardinal Richelieu and Henry VIII. Um, as George and <laughs> Fraser said, he, can do, he, can do, he could do either. Um, but he's a really good, mad Henry VIII. Um, but you are trying to appeal, obviously, to the same way that horrible histories um, appeals yeah. to, to kids. And I've thought a lot about this. And... What I realized about horrible histories was, um, you know, at least even in high, as late as high school, you know, as, when I was a steady C student in history classes, because I had to remember the date of the Missouri Compromise, or was it the recompromise, the compromise of what year was it, <laughs> and, or the exports of Brazil, or the, yeah. you know, or how, how many parts was gold divided into? Was it five or three? I can't remember. Horrible histories just repletes that with, with cooler stuff, like yeah. torture devices. But it's still it's all torture and toilets. It's all torture and toilets. But it's like more cool facts to know about them. Yeah. And you know, at some point, I, you know, what well, it took me a while to teach in college to realize that that was not a good way of presenting history. Uh, and you're you're providing that stuff, but at the same time, you're not actually. It's it your take is very different than horrible histories. Did you did you think about that at all? I mean, I you, did. I did think. I thought about that a lot actually. So yeah. horrible histories is a huge franchise in in Britain. Yeah. Um, uh, basically, one of the, commands, one of the many things the that needs to be exported. Yeah, it commands the market. Right, yeah. and um, it, 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 a horrible histories book is a compilation of facts. Basically, mm -hmm. it's not a narrative; it's a compilation of facts, and the facts are often very gory or very scatological, mm -hmm. um, and they stay in children's minds. There's no doubt about that. So Arthur and his friends who've read horrible histories or seen the TV show, which is even more popular. Yeah. will remember these nuggets. Often they're slightly apocryphal or they're slightly exaggerated stories, but they'll remember them. Now, I sort of, my view was, if you're telling the story of the Six Wives of Henry VIII or indeed of the Second World War, there's a lot of fighting and there's a lot of kind of colourful but slightly gory stuff. Mm -hmm. And it would be weird to just treat that entirely blandly or to, or to sort of brush it under the carpet because children will remember it, but children will also enjoy it. So the, the Henry VIII one is really interesting because my editor often would say, when I'd written those passages, would say, oh, too much, you know, too much for children. <laughs> and yet Arthur and his mates who I would get to read the, the books would always say they're the best bits. You can't take that. <laughs> you know, they loved that. They loved hearing about Henry's leg, his terrible ulcer. They loved hearing about, I mean, we had a big thing about the severing of heads and hanging, drawing, and quartering. Yeah. Uh, again, my editor was like, I think this should be done and dusted in half a sentence. And really, and, and Arthur loved, you know, he, he used to say, you know, oh, yeah. really stretch this out. This is a great yeah. start. I tell Everybody, you. 19-year-olds love hearing about the mechanics of hanging, drawing, and quartering. <laughs> I've often enjoyed myself several times playing the penalty for treason. It's, uh, you know, it's, you know, gone. You know, there's a, there is a sort of um, a voyeurism, if you like, yeah. to history, of course. Now, I think where it obviously becomes really interesting is clearly there are an, a re your readership will tolerate any degree of gore and suffering for, let's say, ancient Greece. They'll tolerate mm -hmm. a fair bit of it for Tudor England. When you get into the 20th century, 
it's a completely different story. It's a really interesting uh, point. Somehow it's real now. Yeah, um, exactly. And and I, I just know that um, in 300 years, people will be dressed up as gangsters and Tommy guns the way we dress up as pirates, which is a very right, bizarre thing course. that we do that. Yeah. Um, and God help us, they probably will be talking about um, the, the gas chambers, perhaps. Uh, the way that we well, talk it, about if it seems or? if it seems less real, um, yeah, I think I, it has to be. I, I mean, I think it has to be. Ghastly as it and tasteless as it may sound, it, you it, may well be right. In that, I just there's the way that we, it. yeah, there's the way that we. Uh, it's like looking through a telescope backwards, right? I mean, where these things seem to recede, and they just can't. They just don't seem real to us. Yeah, absolutely right. You know? I mean, this is the classic example of this, and we talk. I've talked about this so much actually with friends. Is about you. You know, you go to the Colosseum in Rome, where. Yeah men fought and died for the entertainment of the crowd you know in, yep. in scenes that now would strike us if, if somebody reenacted it as utterly ghastly it's just horrific in every way and you will you know you go there with your kids and you're like oh do you want to pose for a photo with the gladiators and you know dress up in a gladiator's helmet and all this sort of stuff because it's like it's as though there's a kind of statute of limitations or yeah. or all that our historical empathy or sympathy i think has a yeah. shelf life you know, it, 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 if Tom Holland was here, he'd, <laughs> he'd explain exactly why we can't put ourselves in their mindset. And he'd be right. Um, we just there, there. We have a lot of intellectual and emotional baggage um, that prevents us from really understanding what it meant. And it, right. we think of it, it. We think of it, you know, like being boxing or something like that. Yeah, um, we do. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I think yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. But you're right. The writing about the Second World War was completely different from that point of view. So I was sort of always thinking. Well, not least. These people, their descendants are alive, yeah. um, and uh, you know they're not sort of this. They're, they're not the sort of slightly semi-fictionalized characters of ancient history who have come, who whose deeds have come down to us so heavily filtered by the sort of formulae that Roman or Greek historians use. Right. These are these are real people whose diaries and letters um, we have, and whose descendants are here. And I have to be. I had thought I had to be completely faithful to I, I couldn't even slightly exaggerate or fictionalize anything um so if they think something in the second world if somebody thinks something i know they thought it whereas obviously writing let's say alexander the great we don't really know what anybody thought about it's anything. impossible yeah. it's really impossible i mean we yeah um we don't even, don't even really know why he died so it's just right, uh, exactly some ideas um so you avoid historiography <laughs> well, you um, have you have to. I mean, but you're not going to say. Don't want to read about historiography. Oh, well, so I, I, I think it's a way your old child would want to read about it. Is I have a I have a theory of how to put it inside a book like caramel inside chocolate, but I haven't really been able to execute that. Yet. Right. <laughs> but um, but you but it's interesting. Uh, you don't avoid say the philosophical understanding that comes from this in the study of history. And, and I really, uh, I, I know you're English. I shouldn't say that to you. Yeah, Immediately, I'm shocked, you're by yeah, shocked by that. Um, but you say here, here's page seven, uh, of the, the six wives of Henry the eighth in the last years of the 15th century, every man and woman in the land knew the story of the wheel of fortune. One moment you're at the top enjoying wealth, fame, and good luck. But before you knew it, fate had turned the wheel again, sending you plunging into disgrace and despair. And thus does fortune's wheel turn treacherously, wrote the poet Geoffrey Chaucer in his book, The Canterbury Tales, and out of happiness bring men to sorrow. And you keep on returning to that idea again and again. And yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're teaching them contingency. <laughs> I mean, you don't call it that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's much better to call it the wheel of fortune. But what they get out of it, I mean, what I get out of it, and what I'm sure they get out of it is that they get the, they get the way that things turn, um, despite yes. all the best laid intentions. Yeah, it's really fun doing that kind of thing, Al. I'm really glad you picked up on that. So in, in, a, in a book that's coming out this autumn about the First World War, mm -hmm. I do a slightly similar thing. So the first chapter of that is about um, Gavrilo Princip killing Franz Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. And there's a point where I stop the narrative and I imagine them all frozen, you know, time stopping and sort of alternative futures not happening because of yes. this moment. Yeah. Um, and I sort of thought, thought, you know, that that wheel of fortune thing. I thought, you know, that contingency is is incredibly important. You know, um, and, and I come back to that slightly at the end. You know, what uh -huh. if Henry had had a son? Yeah. How would England's history be different? I think it's really important for children to start. You, could, but they can think about those kind of issues. I mean, these are nine, ten, eleven year old, twelve year old kids. 
they don't need to be taught. You know, there are these different theories of history. I mean, that's a very tiresome thing for a child to hear. But actually, if you talk about it in quite concrete ways, and, and yeah. the Wheel of Fortune is a, is a device that people used at the time, yeah. then I think they will they get into it. I, I think that I think it's great. I think it's I think you're right. And also, I noticed that this the great designer put in a Tudor rose at certain points, which I realized I don't know if intentionally or unintentionally it looks like a wheel of fortune. Yeah, it does. It does exactly. I, I, yeah. Is that intended? I have to say, I'm, since I've been a kick lately, um, Edward Bedison did the covered art, and boy, he does he does a good job. This he's is, brilliant, uh, isn't he? He's brilliant. Is, the, the, the art for this stuff is is really well done, and that's a really important thing for kids' books. I mean, I think Ernst Gombrich's History of the World, which I love. Uh, mm-hmm. One of the reasons I think is the little the little cut illustrations, the cutscene drawings are They're so beautiful, aren't they? enchanting. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. Uh, and it's really important to have what art there is to be of really excellent quality and entrancing, enticing. Well, you want a child, I think, wants a book to look good. You know, they yeah, just like, as an, like an that. Adult. That's fantastic. You know, it's like a you know a, a cruise liner with um, you know with with lots of Japanese planes and mines and you know a submarine periscope. When I was eight, this was I would have I would have given you know part of a finger for this. this good is man, this is, this is this is good promotional work. Thank it you. is and maps <laughs> and good maps. Yeah, Another we thing. talked a lot about the maps. Yeah. Maps spent we spent tons of time on the maps. And actually, I we, I always said that the, the inspiration for this that bit that point I was making earlier, the inspiration of the map should not be the map in a history book. You know, if child buys the Hobbit, there is a map in the Hobbit, yes. and I used to love that map, and I that should that be map. what we're thinking about. And in know. all the, I mean, you know, Treasure Island began with Stevenson drawing a map for his stepson, right? Exactly. Uh, and, you know, I mean, you know, I I don't know about you, but when I was about six or seven, in fact, uh, I probably out of history books like B- Battle Bunker Hill, I forget this book. I can I can remember passages from that book to this day, but I remember sitting down very earnestly copying the map. Yeah, absolutely. and to figure out the way. I mean, I copied a lot of maps. Um, I used to something... do. I mean, with school, we, yeah. no one does this now, I think. But at school, we used to do maps of battles, yes, and I used to I, very I carefully draw these little boxes with King Charles or whatever or yeah. Earl of Warwick on them, and arrows to show which way the I, men. Went I had my wars. father's uh, his ROTC manual from the Korean War, the Reserve Officer Training Course. So I had right. I could put in the proper military symbols, which made me very important. <laughs> Amongst the third graders, you know, that I, could, I yeah. could put in with, you know, the actual map symbol for a tank, you know, we could really <laughs> lay out the, you know, the battle of the bulge properly. Um, so, yeah, so they got to have to good, have a good map that recalls Treasure Island and the Lord of the Rings and, and the Hobbit, because, yeah, that's, right. that's exactly. part of the mystery, the, the enchantment of it all. Yeah. And, and we said, you know, one of the weird things about writing the, the books is, um, you know, you're writing about World War Two, the child probably doesn't know who the different forces are um they don't know who won they don't know the different alliances they may have a vague sense that hitler was a baddie and the nazis were also baddies but that's probably it they don't know where germany is so they don't know that it's next to france you you know all those sort of things i had to think about they don't know what the treaty of versailles is they don't know who won the first world war so the maps are very useful for that but they're also a good kind of example of the kind of the intellectual sort of work I had to do in a way mm-hmm. to, to try to think, well, what is it like to write a history book for somebody for whom it's their first exposure to this story and they have absolutely no kind of, or very little hinterland. They have nothing to draw on. So when you first introduce Churchill, they don't see the fat man with the bow tie as we do as adults before we, as soon as we see them. So you can introduce him as a boy. You can introduce Hitler as a boy and it's a blank slate. So that was really fun, actually, and completely unlike yeah. any experience of writing a, a traditional history book. How do you, I mean, this is a, a writerly question, but how do you pare down the scenes? So you have a great scene. I mean, I've read this like umpteen times. The um, was it May 5th, um, 1940, when the Chamberlain government basically falls. Um, yes. And, and you had to pair all those five days, John Lukash's five days in May. Um, and you had to pare it down to like, well, three or four paragraphs. Well, you, right. you actually you actually spend two or three pages on it. Yeah. Um, but that is a challenge. I mean, to figure out what something that's it, it's like Dunkirk. Dunkirk, yeah. you had to find new ways of describe to keep yourself interested, even though it's the first time they're reading it. Yeah. Um, and this you've you've thought about that. I mean, Stanley Baldwin is your Twitter avatar, for God's sake. Um, you've, you've thought about this. The, the, you've st- thought about the, you've thought about these days in May a lot more than people should. Right. Um, and so you had to. Cl- declutter your mind i imagine to figure out what's the essence that will appeal to a, a bit a bit i'll yeah. tell you the, the best uh, practice i had for that was 
um, journalism and writing for TV. So you you mentioned at the beginning that I, I write a lot for the newspapers. So a lot of that is boiling very complicated stuff down. Daily Mail columnist Dominic Sembro. Right. To, 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 I mean, for the Daily Mail, they, the, the working assumption is, you know, the, the, the reader doesn't have a massive amount of prior knowledge or indeed sort of fanatical, intricate interest. So you need to convey the information really quickly, bluntly, tell them what's going on. Same they, with actually... For, they have a telegraphic style. I mean, I've noticed they, they, right. the, the two exactly. sentence per paragraph, you know, something like yes. that. You know. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, and also writing, um, so I've written and presented documentary, history documentaries for the BBC, and it'll be the same thing. How are you going to describe Thatcherism or the origins of the Cold War in, uh, in, in 20 seconds? Because it's got to be cut to this piece of footage. And that these are really hard. I, I, interesting and tough challenges and actually it, it trains you to say okay what's the what's the absolute core of this story so that's what i did with for example the the, the days in may sort of stuff mm-hmm. i sort of thought what are the high points that the, the the child reader will will remember and enjoy so obviously the bit where um, an MP says to Chamberlain, you know, in the name of God, go yeah, in the House yeah. of Commons. And an amazing dramatic scene. Yeah. Or the bits when Churchill, you know, says um, to his to the to his cabinet or to the I think it's the a meeting of Tory MPs, actually, you know, um, we're, we're, we're going to resist. We're going to fight on. If this is the last chapter of our island story, let it happen when we're all choking our own blood on the ground. You know, there's amazing stuff. And I thought it'd be demented to leave that out for a child because the child will love that. So it's sort of boiling it down, taking out extraneous characters, focusing on a few sort of a few named characters that they can empathize with, boiling the scenes down, giving a sense of place. Um, And then a lot of cutting, actually, Mm -hmm. a, a ton of cutting. So the mm-hmm. chapters were probably twice as long when they were first written, and I would just cut them and cut them and cut them down because my my agent actually said to me, each chapter should be the length that you would reasonably read to your child at bedtime. That's very you know, nice. That's a that's a pro tip. Yeah, and it's a great tip actually because of course, yeah. as, a, as a, anyone who's ever read a story to a child knows, you don't want to be there for six hours. You know, yeah. you want Welcome to get to the it hobby. done. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, so did you, um, so I, I, I've played around with trying to write stuff like this for this audience. Um, and did you do anything like, uh, did you, so it, it, this became sort of a writerly exercise, just almost as a warm up exercise for the rest of the day's work. I would like try to write a paragraph with only one comma in it. You know, everything right. else was very yeah. Hemingway-esque. Did you do anything like that consciously? I mean, other I than- did. I com- So I completely changed my style from the way I would write adult books. And the way I did it was actually by going for my Daily Mail style. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that the Daily Mail, um, when I first started to write for the Daily Mail, one of my big um, tricks was writing two sentence paragraphs. And I still mm-hmm. do it now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be bang, bang, and then on to the next thing. And I sort of thought with this, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start out doing the same thing because mm-hmm. if you have a two sentence paragraph, then the two sentences, you've got to pack a lot in and, 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 each, and, and each, each part of that paragraph has to have great value. You know, they they're going to stand alone on the page. Um, so, in other words, you can't afford any waffle, any time wasting. And I found that was I mean, I've got to in a history book for kids. You've got an awful lot of information that you've got to try and convey quite quickly and in quite a sort of exciting, stirring way. And, and so those kind of, you know, boiling it down, short sentences. I also wanted it to be very accessible because I thought it would be very tempting to try and write a book for children and to think, oh, I'm going to write a sort of an award-winning children's book with quite florid prose, beautifully crafted. And I sort of thought, what will ensure the longevity of these books is if lots of children can read them. So children who maybe aren't massive readers, yeah, um, who, can, who will be drawn to the story by the strength of the characters, by the strength of the drama, rather than necessarily by my ornate prose. So um, so I tried to keep it kind of quite simple. Um, yeah. But yeah, as a, just as a, as a literary exercise, it was much more demanding and also much more fun than writing. Because mm-hmm. for adults, the sort of temptation is you can slightly, not coast, but it kind of takes care of itself. You know, you're trying to explain what happened and, yeah. and off you go. With a child, I was always thinking the chapter has to start with a bang. It has to be a good story. You have to have a really good character. 
that the child will empathize with and a sense and an arc within each chapter. Yeah. What happens to this person? Do they get off the beach? Do they survive? You know, all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, uh, I have to put this tactfully, you put yeah. out an enormous number of words. Um, uh, it seems to me, I mean, your books are large, even this, the, even these kids right? books are large. I mean, how do you do it? Um, you put it, you write a column for the daily mail. I mean, is this, yeah. I, I have to say that I was scheduling a, a time with you. I was like, Oh my God. I mean, it, it must be his, his morning must be sacrosanct. It must be like <laughs> no, no, three, no. three hours, a thousand words every day. I mean, how does this, does, or do well, you Once do I'm that? done with you, I'm writing, once, once I'm done with you, I'm writing 2000 words about Angela Merkel. Well, there um, you go. I mean, that's, uh, uh, you know. So, um, uh, I just, I, I, well, I, I write a lot, I suppose. Um, I don't, uh, I'm not terribly, um, I'm not terribly introspective about my writing. No. I just kind yeah. of crack on and do it. I see myself as a craftsman rather than an artist. So mm-hmm. in other words, I'm not, I don't precious about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also I think I had a really, really good training, which is, you know, a lot of, um, British writers will say this if they went to Oxford or Cambridge, where they're expected to, you know, the, turn the way something in. turn something in all the time. Now the system, which seems demented, I know to many people mm-hmm. is that, you know, the Oxbridge system would be that you would, um, you know, in my day you would, it was pre-computers. So you would go and you'd have a meeting with your tutor who would be sort of world expert on, you know, the Byzantine empire or something. Mm-hmm. And he would say, do, you know, the origins of Byzantium for next Monday. I'll see you in six days. You know, the very best of luck to you. And you'd yeah. have to write this essay purporting to kind of some authority on a subject. The first time pre- yeah. previously you had no knowledge of whatsoever. First time I um, gave a, my syllabus for a tutorial to my senior tutor, he said, yes. And it was, I gave an American syllabus, which I've seen is very different. And of course right. there was a page for every week in an Oxford syllabus, you know, that, yeah. that these are the sources that I may or student may or may not consult. For, right. First time I, I received one of those from a tutor, I, I almost passed out, you know. And then, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, I remember the very first week I did at Oxford, so I was 18, and it was about the Eastern, <laughs> it was about the East, why the Eastern Roman imperial economy um, performed much better than the West in the sort of fifth and sixth centuries. Now, I had never studied the Roman world at all. Yeah. And he sort of said, well, you know, today is Monday. I'll, I'll maybe see you next Monday. Um, good luck. And I, I wanted to ask him, I don't know anything about the Roman Empire, but, but it was too late. He was gone. Yeah. And, um, and that sort of exercise of, of, you know, cramming and then getting this stuff down, uh, um, which a lot of people think now it has quite a bad press. But yeah. I found it a really, really good, good way of training myself. So digest yeah. a lot of information and then just to hammer it out as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, 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 the good part is it does exactly what it, it's done for you. The, the bad part is it's done exactly what it's done for you. I mean, the, I mean, for some people it becomes glibness. Um, this well, is yeah, the, that's the, an, that's an, the gradu- an Oxford graduate. Most of them civil servants can speak to any point fluently and briefly. Yeah but not with any sort of belief or, or and with, a, with a mistaken idea that they know all about it. Well, this you is know, the that, claim about, um, you know, David Cameron or indeed Boris mm-hmm. Johnson, that they're classic kind of Oxbridge products who know a little bit about it and, yeah. can, and can get through any meeting, yeah. um, but don't actually, you know, go into anything in depth. Obviously, I think this is a tremendous way of educating people. <laughs> well, I, 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 I see its benefits and, I, you know, but, uh, um, and, uh, uh, let's well, get to when we're doing when we're doing the rest is history. You see, Tom Holland and I our, our podcast when we're discussing yeah. that place, it's we'll say, a... it'll sometimes come up, and, and we'll say Tom will say, "Could we do the Spanish Civil War?" And I'll say, "I, I, I did it when I was seventeen. It's fine. We can definitely do it." it <laughs> it's a very Oxbridge podcast. <laughs> uh, but let's talk about the important stuff that I've been wanting to talk to you about for some time. Yeah. And you know, I don't know if I missed this in the Sandbrookian Opera Omnia, but. Yeah. Um, why and this is something I struggled with for four years of of my residency in in Britain. Why do the British only follow one sports team as, they don't. An, as a native of Philadelphia? 
Well, I, okay. I mean, this is what my feeling was, is that quickly when you go to dinner, when you, someone comes into the Rothermere, Americans yeah. to give a seminar, you go to the Curry House, Bombay Curry House or whatever, whatever, 5,000 miles from Delhi. And then, and then there's no, nothing to talk about other than football. Well, this is yeah. a bad habit we have. Yeah. I know. But it was the thing is I realized very quickly that, you know, um, I hadn't read Dominion yet, but I realized that while Christendom might have been lost in Britain, more or less, um, football was an appropriate substitute. And that to to become a to say that I was a fan of the Wolverhampton Wolves, Wolverhampton Wanderers, Wanderers. Sorry, the Wolves. Uh, I know the uh, Wolves is the. Uh, it's very it, complicated. I won't it's very complicated. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But it was like sacrilegious. I couldn't do that. It's like, I mean, it's like in the episode of Ted Lasso this year where there was some ponce who said, you know, I'm in favor of whoever's winning. And that to a Philadelphian is yeah. the word. That's like, you're like a Washington football fan. That's, that's the most disgusting <laughs> thing. That's awful. Um, so I never, but then I, I, I was wondering, you know, I mean, I knew very few, and, and maybe I just didn't get out much, very few people who, who followed football as intensely as they followed cricket, as intensely as they followed rugby. Oh, why do you choose one? Is that your question? Why don't you choose all yeah, three? Why, exactly. So, I mean, I don't feel like as uh, if I'm not following the the Eagles, the Phillies, and the Sixers, and maybe even the Flyers, who are, you know, football, mm-hmm. baseball, basketball, I'm not really doing my bit. I mean, and there are people that also follow college football uh, uh, religiously in addition to several professional teams. So I'm just, I'm just curious, why how did the... Any- how did how did how did the sports space of, of of Britain sort of get so circumscribed? That is an excellent question, actually. It's a very good question. Actually, Tom and I are very good examples of this. And my co-presenter yeah. and I, he loves cricket, but he has no real interest in football. Whereas I think cricket is rubbish. Right. Um, I, now, I, I had it, I had to like cricket because I didn't feel allowed to like football. Right. So here's how I think that works. I think these these choices are to a much greater extent, I mean, I think there's a slight element of this in the States, I might be wrong, but I think to a far greater extent in Britain, they are they are freighted with all kinds of cultural and class we'll get to connotations. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, for example, if I, so you, you mentioned me liking football. I do like yeah. football, and I have a season ticket for the Wolves, mm-hmm. um, so I go every two weeks to watch them. And I have had friends of mine who say, how can you do, how can you go to football you know it's it's really rough people swearing and shouting um it's such a sort of proletarian game so in other words it has this kind of the, the, these things have and i sort of would say oh cricket is a fops game it's you know it's not a real sport all this sort of stuff and certainly rugby the two there are two different versions of rugby in, in britain and both of them are very heavily loaded with class connotations so rugby union tends to be kind of you know, stereotypically, it's seen as a kind of private school sport, as a sort of upper middle class sport. Rugby league, as it's called, is a working class sport from the north of England, and never the twain shall meet. So I think that's part of the reason. Um, it's, that, it's that by choosing your sport and by following your team, you're making quite a, a, a strong and identifiable kind of statement about class, about status, about your kind of cultural identity in a way that maybe you're not when you choose baseball or football or yeah. basketball in the US. And you're making a statement, I think, in the States, you're making a, a regional identity statement. Um, yeah. So, you know, there is always in the Philadelphia hinterland, there is always one person in your class this would be Kenny Walden and mine who has to be a Dallas Cowboys fan just right. to like give the middle finger to everybody. And then, right. and, and we would have beat him ruthlessly, but he was the biggest and toughest kid in the class. Um, so, uh, but there's always that person. There's also, also in certain areas, there's like, there's people you realize like around here in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is more or less the Virginia hinterland. There's no real close professional sports team. You find people of a certain age are in favor of the championship team of that, that oh yeah, but that's the same here. That's absolutely yeah, the same right. here. Exactly. There's the tons same of people at my my age who would support Liverpool, yeah. um, whereas if they were ten or twenty years younger, they'd support Manchester United, right. who were more successful later. So that right. absolutely happens. That always happens. But I think your choice of the sport, the specifically the sport. I mean, I think I would probably say if you're interested in sport in in Britain, football is the norm. Yeah. But then if you're choosing cricket or rugby, there are particular reasons for that. So if you say, "Oh, I'm not interested in football," 
I follow cricket. You're making a very, very definite statement. Yeah, your... that's what I would say. And of course, I picked Gloucestershire to support because they were the first. It was the first Test match I ever watched on the, on, on what was it right. Channel Four? Yeah, that was the Channel Four. So that that was obviously my team, Jack Russell. I had to go with that. So uh, that's great, very. I mean, because most people English in Britain, most people in Britain, or most people in England, would not have a cricket team that they would follow. I mean, that'd right. be very unusual. So yeah. you saying that would actually be extremely unusual. It is. Yeah, um, I, I, I realized it. I almost made an Uber driver uh, drive uh, run into Old Trafford because I was so excited to see it when I was wow. in in Birmingham. Yeah, because, yeah. Uh, you know, I was really, oh, wow, that's you know, I know what that is. <laughs> so that was. Uh, but let's get to the other question about this too. Um, this, so I got to Britain sort of the tail end of Cool Britannia, and mm-hmm. where everyone was an Arsenal supporter, uh, while Manchester United, you know, right? Yeah. Um, and it was like, wait a second. I thought this was the hooligans game. I thought this was the working class game. And all of a sudden, all the, the nouveau bourgeoisie of Blair's Britain, that's a lot of B alliterations there. Yeah. Um, they, yes. um, they, they were all football supporters. Well, what, what happened? This must be, a, this must be an a, a important subject of the next several volumes. Of it is, your actually. Modern- it's a, it's yeah. a colossal social transformation. It um, is. And a, a huge... Hard, I think, for um, U.S. listeners probably to appreciate just how meaningful that transformation was for for people in Britain, even people not interested in football. So, football in the 1980s had been, a, you know, it's the sort of this probably the oldest organised team sport um, in the in the industrialised world. Gave meaning to lots of people's lives. You know, absolutely rooted in the kind of world of kind of Victorian industrial Britain. And by the 1980s, was a, a dying sport. Um, stadiums half full. People dying at matches because of hooliganism, British or English teams rather banned from international from European competition yeah. after 1985 because of their record of. There was the, kill- the the Belgian the the, the Milanese fans, right. I think there was yeah uh, uh, Juventus. So, Juventus, uh, was Juventus, Turin. Yeah. So yeah, that's Turin. At the, he- the Heisel Stadium in Brussels. Yeah. Um, at, at the showpiece, at the equivalent, effectively, of the, the European equivalent of the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. rioting, a wall, part of the stadium collapsing, live on television watched by every country in Europe. I mean, it's almost unimaginable now. So that all happened, and, and English football was completely in the doldrums. And then at the beginning of the 1990s, there was a, a total turnaround. So a lot mm-hmm. of money comes into the game. Um, Rupert Murdoch, Sky TV, start televising it. The government, after the, the the worst of all disasters, the Hillsborough disaster in um, 1989, when 96 people were killed at a, at a big uh, FA Cup semi-final, um, legislated to say the stadiums must be must be improved by law, um, and the game was transformed, and that, that coincided with, as you say, Tony Blair, and the advent of this northern cool Britannia, this much more obviously populist, demotic kind of politics. Um, and, and it became suddenly very fashionable for middle-class people to be interested in football. It became mm-hmm. a way of sort of proclaiming your authenticity and your sort of, and, and a kind of masculinity almost. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it, at that coincided also with globalization. So yeah. at that point, English football started to be, te- it was, it had always been the most kinetic kind of, of all the European games. So maybe not always as good as Italian or Spanish football, but the most exciting, the most mm-hmm. kind of hell for leather. And um, it started being shown all over the world, but also Britain started importing foreign players to a degree that they've never done before. And the Premier League then becomes this great showcase. It starts being shown in America. And, and um, yes, it sort of becomes this colossal enterprise in a way that had just never been. You know, football before the 1990s had been a small, you know, Local teams, they were, they, were, they were nothing like the equivalent NFL team, you know, in right. budget, in prestige, in sort of corporate professionalism. So people were always looking to say the NFL or baseball and saying, why can't we? But in America, they sit down to watch the games and they eat during the game and they can buy drinks at the stadium. I mean, people would sort of talk of this with disbelief. Because you know, <laughs> in England, you, you, you know, you stand up, People yeah. would if pe- there, were, there weren't enough toilets, so people no. would just relieve yeah. themselves where they stood. Very, in the very, stadium. very, very bad stories <laughs> can right. be told exactly uh, about the, um, the the use of newspaper in the stadium. Mm-hmm. Right, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's yeah. an amazing book actually um, by an American called Bill Buford mm-hmm. uh, called "Among the Thugs." So he ended yes. up 
um, uh, it's an amazing I, book. He's a journalist. I, I, I've, I've read in it. I mean, right. where he 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 becomes sort of a uh, he becomes an emotion. Yeah, he's a hoodlum. He's a hooligan. He so he's a he's a graduate student at Cambridge. So mm. not dissimilar from from you. Yeah. Um, and he's standing on a railway platform one day. I think he's visiting a friend or visiting his girlfriend. And a train goes through, and it's full of only football fans because they used to run trains just for football fans. And they're all fighting. There's all fighting. They've ripped out the inside of the train. The train stops. Some policemen charge on, grab a few people, drag them off, and then the train goes off again. And he just can't believe it. And he decides, almost as a sociological experiment, he's going to start going to these Manchester United games and to see what... And he basically becomes a football hooligan. And his um, uh, he travels abroad. They go to Italy and they attack people in Turin and they, yeah. they, they smash up bars and they... You know, they sort of um, vandalize the city and they maraud down the streets. And he talks about the intoxication of it. He says it's like mm-hmm. kind of ex- it's an amazing book because he says, what drives these people? There was this huge argument during Margaret Thatcher's Britain. Are they the victims of Thatcherism? All this stuff. They weren't. Um, what drove them was this almost sort of uh, it, it's very kind of Lord of the Flies or Clockwork Orange or something. It's this buried id. They mm-hmm. just enjoy it. They like smashing things. They like lo- they don't like foreigners. And they like fighting. Um, and they like the being part of a team. Right. Being part of the group and the group being going away. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I think in, being feared. If, yeah. if many of us are honest, um, you can kind of recognize the kind of little germ of that in yourself. You know, when you've been out with your friends, dr- strong drink has, has been mm-hmm. taken. You know, that sense of kind of group identity can be very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, the kind of bachelor party um, mm-hmm. ethos, if you like. And, and I think he identified that. And that was absolutely endemic in British football in the 1980s. And then was rooted which out in the 1990s. Brings us to my last thing, which is not a question, really. It's an indictment. Um, if I had $5 for every time in a department meeting, I've listened to my colleagues talk about English football as if uh-huh. they really knew something or, or gave a toss. Um, <laughs> I, I, I could buy a lot more books. Um, right. And I, I have to say, it's an interesting conceit in modern American academia. Um, no one would ever talk about the Eagles, uh, the, the, upco- or the Eagles-Giants game, which was abysmal. Um, uh, 49ers game, sorry. It was abysmal uh, <laughs> last Sunday. But they'll talk about, you know, East Ham or West Ham or West whatever. Ham. Yeah, that's what they're giving but themselves they, away. They, they, I know that, but they, they probably would be talking about East Ham. I think I've heard them talk. Yes, I'm an East Ham supporter. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it, it is, I have to say, it's one of those things that used to get right up my nose. But that's um, a fascinating thing because... Um, I mean, you must, you must did, have encountered this. People kind I have. Americans people, saying, confiding, to you, oh, yes, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Wolverhampton supporter myself. Of course, I, I am very familiar with this. Um, and I think it's because to a particular kind of American, um, English football foreign a foreign um uh a, a foreign sport has a has an air of it's different it's sophisticated yeah, it's sophisticated. but we have exactly the same thing so when i was a boy yeah. there was a brief moment when the nfl was it was actually english football's in a deer when nfl was very popular so this is it came in in our, the, our the, mutual the, friend ian kershaw was very excited to see the raven stadium in baltimore was he? when we drove by yeah, yeah. Well, i wouldn't have had kershaw down as an american uh, you wouldn't have thought that he was uh, he, no. he was a, a man U fan of course he came by it yeah. naturally but um but uh but yeah it was the raven well, stadium was kind of, yeah. see because that because american football became popular in england because it was seen as modern and yeah. sophisticated and it didn't have the class connotations of English football. So people could, by saying you're interested in American football, or, I mean, I don't think the other sports, the NBA, baseball, or anything like that. It's really hard really... to watch the Super Bowl in Oxford, I'll just tell you, it's personal experience, very, very difficult. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it sort of, it, it marks you out as a, you know, it's a niche interest. Yeah, you're a connoisseur. I can see that. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it's probably the same thing in the States, isn't it? You know, if you're interested in English exactly soccer. It. Exactly. It is. A, it is. And in, but in, in an academic, in a modern academic, kind of, it's a little bit day class. You, you certainly can't see, you certainly can't Sorry, say that's that you're my, um, con- No, it's okay. That's... You okay, we're good to go. You, you certainly can't say that you're interested in college football. I mean, I, I try not to be. And there's a lot of right. there's a lot of baggage there. Um, uh, and you know, all the other stuff. It used to be baseball was the thing. That was the American intellectuals' game was baseball. Um, and uh, yeah, that seems to be that seems to be for old guys now. 
Um, and that now if you're going to like a sport in, in American intellectual life, it does have to be association football. Well, that's interesting because that goes hand in hand with the kind of that suggests that American intellectuals or American kind of academics have the same impulse as British ones do, which is kind of self-loathing. So in other words, yeah. you can't like the thing that all the you might say so. I couldn't. I couldn't possibly in your own. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. I mean, we definitely British intellectuals have a dreadful. I mean, if you you know spent any time in England, you'll know this. Have a terrible well, self-loathing. If it, if it could be harnessed. If it could be harnessed somehow, we could power both of our nations and avoid <laughs> and yeah. avoid any problems with global warming. My right. guest today has been Dominic Sembrook. He's the author of the fantastic new series, uh, what is the Adventures <laughs> Adventures in Time? Is that going to be public? Is that <laughs> yeah? <laughs> how many? How they're two out? Is this going to be published in the states, or are we going to have to continue I don't to write? Know. I basically don't know. Um, so we've really? sold the. It's being published in Germany. It's being published yes, in China. It's being published really? in, uh, bizarrely in Hungary and Romania. I know. Okay. Um, right. Big markets. Big markets. Yeah. Good, <laughs> good, 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 good you crack. China's a pretty big. I, I mean, I don't care about that. One is the cracking the the, the, the Turco Ugric language market is perhaps right. not on the. Well, I said to my agents, you know, um, I, I should set them a challenge. If they can, get them published in North Macedonia or something, yeah, like that, that'd be good. I'll buy yeah. them a case of champagne. Um, and we've got Cleopatra, Alexander the Great, and who else coming soon? So in the autumn, um, World War One is coming, and World War One, yeah. uh, Alexander is coming. Then we've got Cleopatra, um, which I'm just finishing now, and then I'm doing the Vikings, Napoleon, and the Conquest of the Americas. Wow. Well, thank you, Dominic Sandbrook, so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.